1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your blue collar, do-it-yourself, self-guided, public land, elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Elk Shape podcast with me dan the fitness man guys this is a fun one today kyle ostrand he's out of north dakota this guy is a kind of a savage when it comes to upper echelon bigger bulls public land uh he's well known for the 2017 bull he killed uh with ryan carter dc outfitters out of the boulder unit basically in southern utah uh, the bull went over four hundo, but uh, the dude, the dude is a killer. Um, check his uh, resume. We're lo- we're talking lots of public ground bulls on in Colorado and and Wyoming. Sometimes he's killed multiple bulls in the same season, and uh, he's also really cool in the fact that he's guided. So he's spent time in the trenches working with clients that uh, show up to Colorado out of shape, show up to Colorado underprepared, show up to Colorado uh, with no clue how to hunt elk, and that's his job. And so that's where he learned how to elk hunt and then taught people how to elk hunt and was a huge part of a lot of people's success. And then uh, he got into the oil field business uh, for himself. So he's an entrepreneur. He is 100% debt-free, which is really cool, and uh, didn't mean to talk to him about that, but as you listen to the podcast, it comes up naturally, and it's pretty uh, inspiring to hear somebody who's just kind of got their all their ducks in a row, I mean, and works hard as a family man, and great businessman, owns a business that employs 30 people, things like that, so great listen. This podcast will go into the overdrive mode, and if you're wondering what is the overdrive, we'll just hear shortly in a few days, the Elk Collective goes live, finally, and that is going to be your digital resource for all things elk hunting, and that is a collective. That's not one person standing up there saying, here is how to kill elk, here's how to hunt elk, here's everything I know how to elk hunt. This is going to be everything that we know about elk hunting. And when it comes to elk hunting, there's just a lot of ways to approach it. You can be somebody like maybe Dirk Durham, you know, who basically likes timber bulls and does a lot of his elk killing between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. on the back end of a bugle tube. Or someone like Jason Phelps, who definitely likes to call 
and he's very surgical and he's an engineer so he just thinks differently than I do he's just programmed to think differently he's analytical he calculates his best play he runs the numbers and odds and then you have someone like maybe me who's just relies a little bit more on their fitness and mobility and uh, is aggressive but doesn't vocalize very much more sneaking in so that's just the surface, but we're going to bring all our friends from our huge network of elk hunting to the elk collective. And this podcast is still free. You might hear an advertisement here or there from my partners, but you know I got bills to pay. And then also the back half of this podcast uh, will be called Overdrive, and I'll just have it over at the Elk Collective. So you can listen to the audio files there. The Elk Collective will be primary digital, so video and audio. Not a lot of writing, to be honest with you. I wrote for magazines back when they were cool, and uh, I, I'm kind of overwriting. I can hit record and go show things and have visual aids, visual perspicuity. I like video and audio, so that's what you're going to find at the Elk Collective. Now, uh, today we are going to dive deep on just kind of uh, maybe some of you Utah, Utah guys listening. You know, your season opens really early compared to other states, you know, before September 1st significantly. And so it's not easy to kill elk when their velvet's still on or it's just coming off and they're in that transition, that staging zone. Uh, it could be a water game or a pinch point tree stand, ground blind, an intercept. So you might have to hunt them like mule deer or whitetail or whatever you want to call it. So this is a good listen for those. I know we have a lot of folks out there that uh, hunt in different places. So elk shape camps wise, we have Wisconsin coming up. And I'm super stoked. If you want a last-minute spot, you're going to have to email me, elkshape at gmail.com, and I will send you a little bit of a discount, but you, we're pretty much full. So uh, we got a room for maybe, I don't know, one or two more if they really, really want to go. Jason Phelps and I are going, and uh, Anthony Schmidt, owner of Lacrosse Archery. I'm excited for that trip. I get to go to Matthews Archery Inc. HQ. I'm excited to sneak that in there. And uh, we're going to – this will be the last – Elk Shape Camp of the Year, so the last time you'll hear about it maybe, uh, but we are going to be announcing the winner of the Matthews VXR 31 and a half of their choice in a Lakewood double bow case shipped to your doorstep, and we're going to be announcing the Baku e-bike giveaway as well, and to get that, you have to have attended one of our Elk Shape Camps this year, so it's a small drawing. We only did five camps or yeah five camps this year and we'll probably do five camps next year i can tell you right now we kind of have one inked for texas at the beginning of the year at corbin's archery i can guarantee we're going back to colorado with phil mendoza and no limits archery thinking about going to boise idaho that's going to make a lot of sense for us just because uh, it's fairly close and there's a lot of elk hunters would like to do it in my hometown again, but we've done three already. So, uh, I'll only do one in Spokane if we can fill up our 20 spots and I like it cause it's my home field advantage. And then we're looking at possibly going to Pennsylvania and, uh, working on Lancaster communications has been a little slow through all the things, but we're working on all of that right now. I'm headed to, do, uh, a little family vacation, so I'll be offline. But guys, fill your fill those uh, love accounts up with your family. Spend as much time as possible with them. Do your e-scouting, your due diligence. Shoot under duress. Shoot steep angles with backpack on. Test your gear. Keep tinkering. Check out our YouTube channel. It's pretty much everything I've talked about and more. So. Without further ado, let's get to Kyle Ostrand. You are listening to the Elk Shape Podcast. And remember, separation is in the preparation. Guys, welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. Today, I'm sitting down with Kyle Ostrand. Uh, don't know him. 
but I'm going to find out a lot about him. I do know he's one heck of an elk, one heck of a hunter, period. So, uh, But he has an affinity for killing big bulls and hunting public land. Kyle, how are you today? Doing good. Better than I deserve. Oh, is that some Dave Ramsey chit-chat? Are you a Dave Ramsey guy? I am. I'm. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a deep Dave guy. Are you on the warpath to debt free? Uh, actually, there have 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 crossed that threshold. So feels good. Are you married? Married kids. Yep. The whole jazz. How long did it take you to buckle down with the with your better half and and conquer debt? Um. You know, I we kind of came into marriage. I didn't have much to contribute on the debt side of things. We had a few student loans to clear up on her side and um, didn't take us too long to knock that out. And then um, I guess just being diligent about it, you know, we were able to uh, build and buy a house and, and got that knocked out before, before too long. So yeah, it, it feels good. Right on. So you guys that are listening, don't know much about Dave Ramsey. He kind of preaches a debt free, a debt snowball attack. Uh, most people are up to their eyeballs in debt and to be a pretty diehard elk hunter per se, it doesn't make a lot of sense to probably Kyle or myself to be in debt, putting credit card, you know, elk tags on credit cards and gear and, you know, not having your bills paid and going elk hunting. They don't really work together. Wouldn't you say? No, definitely not. It's, it's not a, I don't know. Everybody wants to talk that, you know, getting your meat, you know, is that's the cheaper way. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's an expensive hobby, you know, when you, you put everything together. And so, yeah, I, I would say it's one of those that if you can, you can afford it, it, it feels a whole lot better when you can just pay for it rather than have to pay for it over the next several months afterwards. Mm, well said, man. Do you guys still do an envelope type of system, whether it be electronic or actual budgeting for things that can and will go wrong? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think a lot of it is just, I would say, you know, it, it kind of becomes a way of life and just how you're going to, you know, I guess you can say how you're going to do things and, or not do things. And yeah, keeping that, um, you know, if you want to call it, as he refers to as a rainy day fund and, and, you know, grow that, you know, rather than just a few months worth, several months worth, if, uh, if a rainy day comes or, or several months, it's, you know, you're, you're prepared and, and hopefully not, not scrambling. Hmm. Any advice from your learning curve of getting debt free as far as, well, things that you guys looking back did really well that you think was kind of a catalyst to crushing debt so fast? Um, I think the biggest thing is, that the worst plague that I think that, that gets a grip on most people is just if you can't afford it, like pay for it, write a check for it or, or pull out the cash for it. Don't get it, you know, wait, wait until you can. And just, you know, that if you want to call it this delayed, you know, if you want to call it gratification you know, rather than instant gratification, that that's the hardest thing to overcome. You know, we're, we're a society that we want it now. We stop at a convenience store and, pay twice as much for a for a bottle of water than <laughs> what it's worth but it's convenient and i think that's the biggest thing is just it's a way of life you know and it's not for everybody i would say that you know some people are like you're crazy you know do that just 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 go get it you know you can afford it you know you make enough and i guess there's there's two different ways of looking at it so 
I like what you said there. I think there's a high degree of transferability when you mention the word delayed gratification as public land elk hunters, especially there's a lot of things you probably should be doing throughout the year for delayed gratification for that one shot opportunity on day nine of a hunt where you work so hard. That's delayed gratification. And the same could be said for that new shiny truck that comes with car payments that they're not going to forget to send you an invoice every month. Uh, so paying cash for things and having them paid off. And it's amazing how much dough is freed up when you don't have a lot of little payments here and there bleeding you. That's really cool. That's not why I called to talk to you today was about debt stuff. Although we, you and I could do a whole podcast on that and maybe we should. I, my wife and I struggle with, we're on the last, one of the last steps of the house I'm in right now. We've paid off kind of our vacation home that I bought with my dad in the last year. And then we're kind of just left to this, this house, this mortgage. And, uh, we're just kind of like going back and forth on, well, do we just continue to pay it off or do we leave that capital some liquidity? So if there's other business opportunities, we can jump on them. And um, I think I have two different financial advisors and neither one of them likes the idea of me burning capital on paying off a mortgage. And I just feel like a loan shark most days like, no, we set out to do this. Let's do it. You know, what's your thoughts on that? You know, it, that that's what I think that's what makes business fun. You know, and I guess like myself, I'm, I'm in business for myself and, you know, your, your decisions make or break, you know, what, what, you know, I guess what your future looks like and that it, in a way, you know, that's overwhelming and like maybe too much, too much, too many sweaty palms for, you know, I, I would say maybe a, a lot of people. But I think for me, the challenge of trying to, you know, sit down, pencil it out, you know, your your pros, your cons, you know, the what ifs, you know, and, and make a, you know, make a choice. And a lot of times in business, you got to, you know, you've got to take chances and you, know, you just calculate your risk. You know, <laughs> honestly, it's it's not a whole lot different than trying to make a play on a bull. You know, you calculate what's going to be your best play what's going to be your, your best risk, you know, and, and you go for it. You got to take chances sometimes. So that's a perfect analogy. So where do you live? Where, where's home base for you? Uh, live in Northwest North Dakota, uh, a town called Williston, um, right in the heart of what's considered the oil field, uh, in, in North Dakota. Anyway, we're pretty much live and die, you know, on the energy world, you know, oil and gas here. Um, that is that is home. That's where that's where I reside. Um, wife, two kids, and we've got a kind of a small service company, I guess, that uh, we service the oil and gas in- industry, um, trucking, cranes, um, various other like on-site services, I guess. But it's uh, it's been a way of life for about the last ten or eleven years now, I think. Okay. Wow. So how long have you lived in North Dakota? About that, about 10 or 11 years. Um, I, uh, I actually grew up in Nebraska, um, was, graduated, um, university of Nebraska and then moved to Colorado, lived out in Colorado for about, uh, seven, eight, maybe nine years, I think. And, um, then when that I was working construction, when the housing industry, kind of flopped or really crashed in 07, 08, 
um, changed gears, um, gathered some elk hunts for a little bit, for a short bit, lived, lived in a little cabin up in the, up in the wilderness in Colorado for a, for a bit. That was, that was pre, <laughs> pre-family, pre, uh, uh, my wife Marquette, and then, um, decided it was time to get serious and heard about an opportunity of a lot of activity in North Dakota and took off to go explore it and never came back. So you are in business for yourself. Um, how many employees do you have? Uh, got about give or take. We hover right around 30 employees, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. We're kind of going through a pretty trying time right now with the oil market and prices kind of slash COVID the whole situation right now. It's, it's a pretty tough scenario, but we're, we're getting by. That's good to hear. Um, as a business owner, how do people elk hunt that don't own their own business and they work for somebody else? Have you ever taken the time to realize like, that's a pretty tough, and that's a situation most people listening are in. Um, and my heart goes out to them. Uh, and I always say on this podcast, it's almost cliche now, but I'd rather work a hundred hours a week for myself than 40 for somebody because basically I want the autonomy in my schedule when it comes September. Do you have any, like, have you, how did you do it? Starting your business, managing your time, getting, you know, balancing family, work, life and hunting. And then where are you at now? How does that schedule look like? Well, you nailed it. I mean, it is really hard, you know, working for somebody where you've got limited time off. I would say even those that have had a, a, a tenure with, with, you know, their employer for a while that get, you know, 10 days, you know, 14 days, maybe even, you know, three weeks of vacation, you know, where they have to spread that out over the whole year, you know, between family events, holidays and stuff like that. It, it's, it's hard. You know, I think that's the, that's the toughest part. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in success is, you know, a lot of people go, you know, like, well, I get off work at Thursday on Thursday, I'm going to jet, I'm going to drive, you know, whatever that is, eight, 10, 12, 20 hours, you know, and, and start hunting, but I got to be back by Wednesday the next week or whatever that looks like it. It's kind of a recipe for just, I mean, unless you've got some luck, it, it, it just makes it really hard. So, um, for myself, I, I would say that I'm just very, very fortunate, very blessed. Um, I've got a very understanding wife that knows that I, you know, I, that is kind of my release. That's kind of my, you know, I guess getaway to, to kind of recharge a little bit. I put in a lot of hours, put in long days, long weeks and, you know, shoulder a lot of stress, you know, having a, an operation, you know, where I've got 30 people, you know, on, on payroll and, you know, the responsibilities with that. So it, it's kind of my chance to get away. And so even starting my business, I kind of always been able to get away, you know, maybe not as freely as what it is, has been the last couple of years, like starting a business, it, it was, you know, I could get away, but it was just more of a challenge. Um, and now, you know, I guess I, I kind of, you know, I don't know, as bad as it sounds, you know, my wife says, well, when does the season end <laughs> so that I know worst case scenario, you know, when, when you'll be back. And, you know, I guess it's, it's priceless just having a wife that understands, you know, I guess, you know, the, <laughs> if you want to call it the, the curve balls that, a you know, that a hunt, you know, can throw at you between weather and just all the other elements, you know, that, that play into it. 
So that's been a huge part for me, you know, as well as just, you know, having surrounding myself with people, you know, within my operation that can, you know, I can hand over the reins to and, and help, you know, make things maintain and carry on, you know, and while I'm gone. Man, that's, that's powerful. The, the better half understanding, or at least putting up with, it's everything. You will not hunt your best if the home thing isn't taken care of. It will be a distraction. And I've had that happen before where I just didn't do a good enough job communicating my open-ended hunt plans. And a lot of, you know, just the lack of communication means just the expectations are not on the same wavelength. And, you know, if you're going to pursue elk or any animal, especially with a bow, it's going to take some time, energy, and effort, and it's not just you sacrificing, it's everybody. That's well said, Kyle. Um, I want to get into your guiding days in Colorado. How long did you guide for? What parts of Colorado? Uh, just give us an overview because then I'm going to dig in on the guide life and the things that you learned about clients coming from all over the country to hunt with you. No, it wasn't it wasn't real long, only a couple of years. I think I, I maybe came back and helped out you know, at that time or two after that, but, um, it was down in the Southwest corner, Colorado, kind of in the, oh, I don't know, I guess you can say, uh, the San Juan, uh, national forest, I think is what it's been long enough. Now I gotta, gotta refresh, but kind of in the Durango, Silverton, Telluride, uh, vicinity down in that area. Beautiful country. All right. So as a guide, did you guide all sorts of weapon or was it primarily rifle? Did you have muzzies, archery? What were your clients? Yep. So it was all three. The way Colorado does it, you know, they're kind of staggered. You know, archery starts first, muzzleloader uh, overlaps during archery, and then they've got the, the four different rifle seasons. And so did did all the, the different seasons. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess kind of the progression, we usually wrapped it up by third rifle just because usually the snow was getting getting pretty deep by fourth rifle okay so you got these clients coming in i'm assuming the majority are not residents of colorado majority no how many were flatlanders coming out west i would say that majority to be honest with you i don't know as though i could i could recall anybody coming from a western state you know that would be above even 2000 feet elevation. I, I think most of them were, were from a, a low, low elevation state. Talk to us about like the physical and mental limitations of clients that maybe bit off more than they chew or you as a guide specifically understanding where they're at and kind of catering the hunt, you know, so they could acclimate and, you know, salvage a hunt or potentially, even have some badass clients where you can get after it. What, what was that balance like? It was, you know, it's a challenge, you know, you're, you know, as a guide, you know, very similar to like my business now you're providing a service. And so you want your service to be, you know, impeccable, you know, ultimately, you know, anybody that shows up for the hunt, they want, you know, they want, they are, they're after the kill, you know, the success, you know, of a kill, but of course they want a good experience and, you know, I, I could tell you stories, you know, that they would take some time. I'll, I'll touch on a couple of them that, that I would say pretty well explain it. I, one of my very first clients, they were, it was actually a couple, it was a husband and wife. Um, I think he was like early seventies. Um, and I think she was maybe in her sixties. 
Um, both came, I would think they were from Texas. I wouldn't say that either of them were in great physical shape, but, you know, of course they show up and we kind of just discussed like, okay, you know, how, how capable are you if, if it's not a real steep walk, you know, if you could walk a mile or two or, you know, and they kind of feeling it out there. And, and I actually, that the night before we were supposed to start hunting the night before I, I hustled up the mountain and actually put a, put a herd of elk to bed, you know, on an open meadow with a big overlook that I thought, oh, this will be a, this will be a slam dunk. If he can, if he says he can walk, you know, a mile, mile and a half, you know, just, just at a slow pace, you know, we'll, we'll do it. I'll walk him up a logging road and daybreak these elk should be there. And we started out the next morning and didn't get a a hundred yards from the truck. And boy, it was, it was a struggle and we were fighting. And of course we're walking in the dark and, and just they, I would say that there, there's no way to really fully understand, you know, even if it's not a real steep climb, just that elevation, you know, and, and what it does, you know, for, for lungs that aren't acclimated to it. You know, I think we were probably at maybe 9,000, maybe 9,500 feet and it was a struggle. You know, we, we ended up, it was a only about a mile walk to where we were going and, I think we got there about two hours after daybreak and of course the elk were gone, you know, by that point. And <laughs> we, you know, we hung out for a little bit and we turn around and start coming back and, and it just, it had not, that not been a limitation. You know, I, I have very little doubt that we'd have had success the very first morning, you know, just because I'd, I'd done my homework and, and found out. And I think that, you know, as a guide, you know, I kind of know and I can tell them, you know, hey, this is what the case is. But I think a lot of people that, that go into it that, that don't, you know, have a guide or don't know where they're going, it, it's 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 a, I guess you can say a, a learning curve that is is very, very hard to overcome, even even being in shape. I, I had a client, I think he was from Maryland, that he, he was running marathons and, you know, he'd been, I don't, maybe even like, uh, you know, ultras or, or uh, triathlon. I'm not really sure. Real fit guy. I think he was military. Uh, just, I mean, he was, he was, and I was excited. You know, you just said how, how excited you can be on having a client that was that way. And, and even still, you know, I would say for the first two, three days, he struggled. You know, it wasn't his muscles. It was just, you know, getting that oxygen, you know, just the, you know, I, I guess the concentration is really what it comes down to, but getting used to that, you know, and after about, you know, three or four days, you know, he was, he, he was dialed in, you know, and, and was, you know, keeping up and, and doing really well, but it's just almost impossible to prepare for, for the elevation and what, what you're going to be faced with physically anyway. Yeah. That's just something I wanted to touch on. I knew, I knew that's such a powerful experience as a guide, you get all walks of life and you are providing a service and they're leaning upon your decision making to get them the best outcome kind of wherever they're at you have to meet them where they're at physically and mentally and i think a lot of people come to colorado from the eastern seaboard side because that's the first stop man and it's uh got the most elk out of any state out west just uh no capped over the counter tags it's just a good place to elk hunt so combating altitude um 
Do you have any tips for those that are listening that are maybe going to be in that position, what they can do or what? how many days should they get there early or how much hydration and any supplements or workout regimens, anything that you can think of off the cuff? Yeah, I, you know, I all even use myself as an example. I think that we, um, I think we're right at maybe like eighteen or nineteen hundred feet elevation here in North Dakota, um, and so uh, like every year, you know, we'll just say the the first archery hunt that I go on, you know, I I have to deal with, you know, even preparing, you know, and and feeling like I'm in in tip top shape, and you know, my everything for my endurance, you know, especially cardio all those things that I, I really push, you know, to help. And last year, my first hunt of the year was uh, a mountain goat hunt in basically right next to Teton national park in Wyoming. And, uh, I felt going into it, I was like, Oh, I'm in, I'm in great shape, but I got up to 10, 11,000 feet up, you know, just outside of, uh, Teton park. And it, it kicked my butt. It, uh, even, even going into it, knowing fully prepared, you know, what I could do. And it took me a few days and it, and it wasn't a muscle thing. You know, I, I think that's a lot of times the case, you know, that people don't realize just how physically demanding it is, you know, to throw a 50, 60 pound pack on and then, you know, your gear and, and, you know, start going vertical that even coming from an experience, you know, like myself, it, it took several days to, to get, to where my body was doing what I wanted it to. And I, and I think that the, myself, I think that the best thing that a guy can do is extensive cardio. You know, I think the, um, you know, of course your, your muscles are going to help you, you know, as you're carrying, you know, packing weight or, you know, doing all those things, getting up there, but the more your, your lungs, you know, and especially, you know, your legs, you know, that you can, you can have it prepared for that endurance, you know, if you want to call it, portion of it that I think that's the biggest key more than anything else. I like that. So there's some really good studies out there, guys listening on rucking and rucking for weight and a lot of really good like exercise physiologists, PhDs, guys one more step above me on education that are more in that clinical setting that have done all the studies. Running is not going to be the magic bullet to get you in backpack conditioning shape. It's no surprise. It's actually backpacking and rucking. There's no substitute. And you need to have a mix of lighter pack days and longer sustained efforts coupled with shorter, more intense, so more work, less time, heavier pack. And then strength is a huge determination of how well you can handle a heavy ruck. And a heavy ruck is relative, right, Kyle? I mean, 50, 60 pounds for me is about where I start because I always am carrying way too much stuff. But what about when you kill stuff and especially when you're solo and, and maybe you get greedy and you want to pack out a high end quarter deboned and loose meat to save a trip. We're talking triple digits, right? So to be able to have injury resistance and to have to fight off the, you know, the ravages of twisting your ankle, you'd need structural integrity through the soft tissue and the muscles. You have to do strength training and muscles very important and you don't have to do a lot of strength training which is the beauty of it you just got to have a couple bouts a day less is more intensity is high and then rucking but i just think people fall into the trap of like i gotta go run five to ten miles a day and it's good but there's 
it's kind of like this, it's like your financial portfolio. You kind of have to spread out your eggs. Don't put them all in one basket. So I'm glad we talked about that, but I want to get into, and this is me selfish. I want to talk about your bull that you killed, uh, in Utah. And I don't know how long ago it was, but I know it was a giant. I know it was on magazine cover or covers. And I think you hunted with DC outfitters, uh, Ryan. So can we dive into that hunt for a minute? You bet. Okay. So you're a North Dakota guy. You drew that tag, I assume? No, I was actually kind of the, uh, I guess you can say I got it secondhand. Somebody had bought the auction tag and then they couldn't hunt. And I had kind of gotten to know Ryan a little bit. And Ryan, I guess when he had, it was a client that had lined up with him uh, that had gotten the tag and they said, Hey, we can't, we can't use this tag this year. Let's, let's get it somebody that can. He's like, Hey Kyle, you, uh, you want to, want to give this a whirl? <laughs> and I, you know, of course I was like, oh, I don't think I can afford it, but you know, let's, let, let's talk about it. And I ended up getting it and yeah, it was, it was in 2017. Okay. And that was, are we allowed to say the unit or not? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you don't have to dig too far. It's the Boulder Kapirowitz. I was going to say it's got to be a Boulder or Dutton, but Boulder. Okay. Uh, and how many points do you have in Utah? Oh, goodness. I think I've got around 10 points right now myself. Okay. Are you on some sort of waiting period or are you good to go? Uh, no, I'm good to go because that was an auction tag. It didn't, it didn't, uh, uh, actually doesn't interfere with the, the waiting period. Like if you draw. Cool. Uh, I am, I think I'm at 13 for Utah or maybe, maybe 14 now. I'm not sure, but it's not enough to draw obviously would love to do that hunt specifically but so you hunted with ryan we're going to bring ryan on eventually uh for my side project the elk collective i'll tell you about that in a second but uh the dude runs a trail a trail camera program that might be unmatched so tell us about that from your perspective as a basically as a friend of his hunting with him i i don't want to say client because you're a savage elk hunter but that's his honey hole that's his place he knows it what was your impression of his trail cam program? You know, it is, it's just unreal, you know, and especially, you know, where I've, I've gotten to know Ryan really good the last several years. And, um, I, you know, you, you can, you can follow his Instagram and you can see it like, man, how in the world does this guy come up with so much content, you know, a new, a new video or two, you know, every day, you know, throughout the whole year. But, you know, when you've got hundred and some cameras out there, it, it is, you know, that's how, that's how it's done. And I think the biggest thing is because you can go nail a camera on, you know, a tree all over the place. He's, he's taken it to a whole other level and really dissected topography, you know, landscape, North slope, South slope, um, you know, saddles, you know, all those where he has learned that just animals doing what animals do you know, where, where they travel, what, where they go, when they go, you know, and, and then, you know, on top of that, you know, figuring out what bull, you know, is here, you know, typically in this area in the early season, usually when he ruts, he kind of moves to this area. And then after that, you know, where they kind of migrate all the way throughout, you know, going to their, basically their winter grounds and to be able to just, I guess you can say, put, put that biography, you know, together on, you know, different bulls and, you know, elk are going to do what elk want to do, you know, but to be able to figure out, you know, the, um, I guess you can say the, 
routine, you know, and, and, uh, what they do year after year, that's, that's what really just makes, I would say, Brian, so successful, just taking it to a whole nother level. So someone with your prowess of elk calling and being successful on basically crowded units in Colorado and still getting it done. What was it like? Did he warn you ahead of time going into, well, I got a Utah tag. The season opens middle of August and bulls might even have a little bit of velvet still on them. And we're probably not going to be vocal on these elk. We are going to whitetail them. We are going to hunt them from the ground or ground blind or whatever, but we are going to utilize pinch points and topography and trail cam intel. I mean, what was it like for you kind of switching gears considerably? Sure. It was, you know, to be honest with you, it was actually kind of, in a way, I I really, I didn't have a a real hard time adapting because I I grew up in Nebraska. So whitetail was really, you know, I guess the extent of what I hunted up until I moved to Colorado, um, after college. And so, you know, I, I was able to come from a, a strong back, a whitetail background, which if somebody doesn't have that, they, they would, you know, especially like a Western hunter that's open country spot and stock, you know, mule deer, it, it, it's very hard. You know, that patience level <laughs> is, is something that I would say gets, gets the better of most people just not understanding like, what do you mean? We're going to, that didn't work yesterday. Why would we do it again today? And just understanding that concept, you know, of knowing that, well, just because it didn't work yesterday, doesn't mean that, you know, we're, we're out of the, out of the game on this. And so that was the part, I, I think that it was a good, good mesh, good blend with Ryan and I, and, you know, the, the advice, the intel that he had, but he still gave me, um, you know, the, if you want to call it the ability to kind of decipher and, and choose what I thought was going to be going to be best to do. And for the first, you know, for the first two weeks, I would say we stuck to a pretty, pretty, you know, strong game plan of just, um, we're going to, we're going to wait, we're going to wait for a turn to happen. And, and, you know, I mean, it, the way it ended up playing out, I mean, our, our plan worked out perfect, but, um, you know, I mean, it's every hunt's going to be different, you know, and the timing and everything else, but they, they were still, still had velvet, you know, at the early part of the season. In fact, the bull that I killed, um, MJ as the, the name that we had given him and he had, you know, when I actually, I think on day three, walking in in the dark, I actually walked in on him laying in his bed. He had, he still had dreadlocks of, of velvet hanging off of him. Uh, when I, when I saw him. So you bumped him walking into your stand? I did. It was, uh, I was headed up. It was about a mile, mile and a quarter walk to, from where he park a, you know, four wheeler to, to where my stand was at, you know, and I usually got to about three, 400 yards and usually, you know, change out of some sweaty clothes from, from walking up there. And I, just before I got to that point, I ducked under a tree and headlamp and, uh, you know, on walking in the dark and here he was just laying in the trail, just laying there chewing his cud, looking at me, (laughs) wondered where I came from. So what was like, what was Ryan's deal on picking a stand? I imagine there was multiple or were, and I don't know, I haven't heard the stories. So, or was it just, we have a tree stand. We know he's going to come through here. If you put your time in with the right wind, it's going to happen. Like take us through the whitetail game strategy as far as, you know, where did he drop you off? Was, why did he pick that spot? 
um, changing clothes. That's a great tip. Like I love that. And then slipping into the stand and then how long do you sit? And then if there are elk underneath you when it's you're at a shooting light, how do you, is the plan to stay there and wait for them to leave? What if they bed down? All that stuff I think about would like to hear your thoughts. Sure. No, you bet. I'll, there's a lot to that. And so I guess you may have to re- remind me here, but that was the biggest thing that Ryan I really kind of preached. He's like, look, and, and we kind of went into it knowing it was kind of, you know, MJ or bust. You know, and, and we had kind of said, you know, Ryan said, look, this thing, you know, he's there's been outfitters. There's been, you know, hunters the last several years that tried to kill him. You know, he'd been he'd been better than a 360, 370 bull for this would have been the third season. And so there was, you know, he was I don't know if you want to call it celebrity status, but he was a well-known bull, you know, down there, not only to, you know, other outfitters, but just people that, you know, I guess in that vicinity. And so we kind of both went into it knowing, all right, you know, we're going to do what we got to do to, you know, to finally get a, a whack at him. And, and the, the location that we chose was a location that Ryan just historically, uh, years prior had consistently gotten pictures of him. Um, you know, and even the year before, I think he had said that he had pictures of him early season, you know, so we'll just say velvet or just coming out of velvet and about Labor Day is when they, you know, really start to feel the itch. And he had pictures of him where uh, in the vicinity where I killed him one day, the next day he had pictures of him about five miles away with a group of cows. And like two days later, he had pictures back where we were hunting him. And so Ryan just said, he's like, look, you know, he, he stays here. This is his home turf, and this is where he ruts. He goes and gets cows, and then he, you know, he brings them here. He never, he couldn't ever figure out where he would go get his cows till the year before, if I remember right. And anyway, so he was just like this. This is he's gonna come through here. It's just a matter of time. And and I did, you know, I I bumped him on day three. I don't think that I saw him. I think it, I went about nine or ten days before I got eyes on him, and and that was kind of the period where he had left. And gone and hooked up, you know, and grabbed a handful of cows. I, I think he probably got 25, 30 cows. And on about day 13, sure enough, he showed up right where right where we'd been hunting, you know. So I'd, I'd been sitting there two weeks, really hadn't seen him or seen anything of him. But on day 13, he showed up and he hung in there for a couple of days. And that's when we were trying to figure out stand placement location you know they were they were bedding here they were feeding here and of course it's it's the rut by this point you know i mean there's there's other bulls they're all screaming their head off so there's always there's always a chance you know a wild card something's going to happen you know some big brawler's going to come in and you know they they push out of there and you so he he returned to where we knew he was going to be you just all those other variables that you have no way of preparing for you just know that this day could be his last. He could disappear and hard telling where he could go. It's, it's such a hard unit, you know, other than the, the cameras because it's so thick, you know, it's, it's not like you can get on a high point and glass and figure out, Oh, there he is. He's clear over there. You know, you, you lose him in the timber, you know, until, till he hits a camera and you can check that camera quick enough to know, um, that, that, you know, that he's been there, you know, you're, you're kind of going at it blind. But 
uh, I guess some of the tactics wise, you know, that, that we did is, you know, obviously staying patient, knowing this is, this is the zone, this is the spot. We need to just sit tight here. Um, it was, it was, it was a steep climb, you know, that season starts somewhere around, uh, you know, like the 17th, 18th, 19th of August every year. So temps are hot, you know, it's, it's a steep climb getting up there. So a lot of times I was hiking in and just gym shorts and, you know, a, you know, just a a light t-shirt, you know, enough to soak up some sweat and not just have it soaking my pack up. But, uh, the routine of going up there every day, you know, I kind of started to figure out, you know, I was, I was leaving, you know, some clothes stashed up there on the mountain rather than having to pack them every day. But I would, I would always try to get into at least a, a decent change of clothes. That's not just soaking wet, you know, with sweat. So stand placement, uh, did you guys have to move stands or did you have several stands? Were you using a climber? Basically, how did you cinch the noose on where to set up and get your archery shot from elevation? So we had actually started, you know, where I would say the the week prior to season, he'd hit a camera two, three times, even, even the night before season, he had hit a camera and we had a stand right above it. So I sat that stand for the first several days, uh, I was probably, you know, working on day five or six or so that I was hearing an awful lot of elk, you know, starting to talk a lot of, you know, just cows mewing, bulls starting to bugle, um, up above me, uh, kind of a clearing and opening. And so I, I said, Hey, we, I think we need to get a stand up there. So we put another stand up there, tried, played the wind right as best we could, you know, just, and it was going to be, you know, more of a, you know, an, a, a morning stand versus an evening stand, you know, versus where, you know, where we put it for thermals and everything. So we, we put it on one end, kind of on the conservative end that we didn't, didn't want to take a chance of, you know, blowing, blowing my wind scent out there any more than what we just had to. And I saw him consistently on the other end of that meadow, um, I think two days in a row, but I think like maybe it was a morning and a night and then another morning and they were kind of coming from the same spot, leaving at the same spot. And I, I told Ryan, it's like, there's, there's no trees where we can even think about getting in over there. But I said, I got to be over on that other side. And so I actually just kind of went and I basically cut some pine boughs and grabbed a few limbs and made a little makeshift ground blind that was going to be the ideal location. The problem is that those elk were usually on that meadow and I had to come in from the far end where my stand initially was. So when we got to have, you know, pretty a a full moon or or even having any moon, I had to wait until there was enough light to cross that meadow that I could see that there was, there was no elk. I didn't, you know, I was going to bump elk off that meadow before I could get in there. So it was one of those, I just had to, to really just take the elements, either the thermals or the light situation you know, any of those things. And, and, you know, it it wasn't ideal, but you just had to calculate your risk, minimize, you know, your chance of screwing it up. And, and sooner or later, uh, you know, we thought that it was going to happen. And from about day 14 until the morning, I think I killed him on day 19. Um, I, I don't, we, I don't think we had eyes on him. I think we found, he hit a couple of cameras right in the vicinity. So we knew he wasn't too far, but he had kind of disappeared 
And the morning of day 19, I had, it was a morning with the moon. I had to wait for that moon to get just right. So I slip in there and I was, I was in before, you know, there was enough light for shooting and he came in and it was, I, I didn't have enough light for, for shooting yet. And I, you know, kind of crouched down in this little makeshift blind, had to wait, wait, just hoping that he was going to still be there. And luckily enough, he, he was with some cows. They started grazing right out in front of me and he re- laid down and in a wallow and probably rolled around for 20, 25 minutes enough where, you know, it, it got to be shooting light. And shortly, as soon as he got up out of his bed, he came over to hook those cows that were standing right in front of me and got a shot at him. How far a shot? I think it was 61 yards, I believe. Okay. Did you feel pretty good about the break? Um, the the shot was good. The only problem is I had rehearsed that shot dozens, if not hundreds of times, you know, making sure that the, the height of what I had to clear shooting out of a little window of that blind that I wasn't going to clip any limbs. And I did. I, I clipped a limb and the the height on the shot was perfect. But I would say it was about probably about five, five, maybe six inches further back than what what I wanted it to be. You know, you could kind of see that arrow tail as it came out of there. And and that was the only thing that those cows actually heard was just my arrow clipping the blind when it came out. Um, I hit him. You know, it was was clean pass through and arrow stuck in the ground. I had I had a lit knock. You know, I could see the thing glowing on the other side of him and. He didn't have any clue what happened, so I actually knocked another arrow. None of them, the cows, you know, he didn't have any idea that I was there. And um, knocked another arrow, and he, he was still standing there, same spot. And I actually, I, I clipped the limb even worse the second shot. I kind of <laughs> overcompensated, thinking, oh, gosh, I didn't, I didn't give myself enough room. And I overcompensated, clipped it even worse. And that arrow tailed down and just hit right at his feet. Ah! Kind of spooked him. Um, and he just, he, he didn't run off. He just kind of, you know, meandered up in the trees. I thought, oh, okay, we'll give him enough time and, um, you know, to let him, let him be. I, I knew, you know, I mean, I knew it was a, it was a lethal shot, just a matter of how much time it was going to take. You know, even, even if worst case, if I didn't get a lot for vitals, you know, you send a, pass through arrow even through the guts you know they won't last more than probably 24 hours did you think you nicked liver based on how he was acting kind of just shocked yeah and i knew i hit rib you know i I heard it hit rib Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. i i felt good that i hit at least something good Mm -hmm. um but you know you just you never know you know and of course as a bow hunter you always you second guess yourself you know to the to the worst extent 100 percent and so I thought, you know, if I, if I did, if I even clipped liver, um, I thought, you know, I should probably give him five hours, you know, thinking that would be, even if it was just, just the liver that I clipped, I thought that'll, that should be enough time. So I ended up, I think I shot him maybe six, six thirty in the morning, somewhere around in there. And then I, uh, I gave him till about 1230, I think. And I, uh, you know, just started creeping in. Um, and the, the, actually the cows, cows that were there, they, they stayed right out there. They, they knew that he ran off, but they didn't really understand what was going on. And they actually stayed out there in front of me for about 30 minutes. And so I, I, I felt good that, you know, it's, it's one thing if you just clear the whole herd out of there, 
Yes. It's another thing if just one elk runs off and they all look at him like, what's, what's he doing? You know, what's, what's he up to? And so they stayed there. So I, I didn't feel like he went just real far. Um, but he, he went out of sight, you know, within a hundred yards. And, um, he, when I gave him about six hours, I went and found his bed, there was blood, but no bull. And I just went a little bit further up the slope and there was no blood trail. And he had, um, he'd actually gone up to the, just the first bench and then he started paralleling around and lo and behold, (laughs) Ryan and his, his masterful craft, he had a camera right there. He actually walked right in front of a camera. Are you kidding me? No, no. I've got pictures of where, you know, I could, that's how I knew exactly where the shot placement was. He walked past a camera, uh, on that first bench up there and he had walked in front of that camera, five minutes in front of me, you know, I was just kind of creeping through there and, and that's how I knew that I'd bumped him. I, I knew that I, he'd obviously got up out of bed, but I didn't know how quick, uh, cause I didn't have eyes on him. And sure enough, he was five, five minutes just astride in front of me. And so I knew he was on his, on his feet still at that point. And that's, you know, my heart sunk, you know, my, just my gut was a, a wreck thinking that, you know, worst case, you know, I, I must've, I thought, gosh, I must have put it right through the guts, you know, for, for a bull to still be on his feet, you know, with a clean pass through after six hours. And well, he, I didn't, we didn't find out right away, but he only went about 200 yards and tipped over from where he went through that camera, I guess. But yeah, you know, a whole lot of luck, you know, camera placement, you know, shot less than ideal. Um, but that's, that's elk hunting. So did you get good cell phones, sir? And I'm sorry we're talking so much about this one bull. I know you've been on other podcasts talking about it. Um, I don't consume a lot of other hunting podcasts, so I'm selfishly just digging in. I know there's good nuggets in here and questions people haven't asked. Did you have cell phone service or an inReach to be able to communicate with Ryan? I didn't have an inReach. Uh, cell phone service was pretty spotty. Uh, where Actually, where my blind was at, I did not have any cell service. But if I went to the other end of the meadow and crawled up in that other stand, I could get a get a bar or two, and so that's actually what I did. Or or if I just scaled out, you know, get you know a quarter of a mile back out on kind of the front face of the mountain, I could I could get some service. So after I knew that he was on his feet, I did. I backed out completely. You know, I let you know Ryan know. Of course, I think Ryan, I think I'd already let him know that I'd put an arrow through him and he was on his way because um, he wasn't he wasn't around there. He was in. He was, you know, I guess back to daily routine, you know, 19 days into a hunt. I think I'd about wore out everybody. <laughs> um, and so he was, he was driving down from Salt Lake and, um, you know, well on his way by the time that I found out he was still on his feet. And then of course, after that, you know, we gave it several more hours before we start, start gridding and searching. Wow. That's incredible. Mindset wise, just to kind of look in behind the layers for you, Kyle, especially when the elk are not talking the first two weeks of season and you're in tree stands all day, how are you not losing your mind? Did you have a book to read? You obviously aren't on your phone. So, and I'm sure you scrolled through your camera roll looking at your family. Um, but how much doubt crept into your mind? What kept you so focused on just this bulls a once in a lifetime or a couple lifetimes bull? Like, dude, what was your mindset to fight off 
all the hours of nothing. Sure. It, it was tough. You know, there's no way around it. Like it was, you, you hunt 19 days. That's, it's physically demanding, but I, I would say even still, I, you know, I think I lost 25 pounds, you know, just the physical demand, you know, during this hunt came, came back <laughs> skin and bones. Um, but the mental fatigue and just that, you know, if you, all those doubts, like you said, you know, of just having to sit there and endure that, that I, the one thing that I would say is that we were really trying to play it conservative, you know, and, and that, that early in the season, uh, those bulls, they're, they're not, they don't ha- until they start, you know, pushing some cows and really starting to talk, they, um, they're not doing, they're, they're not real active during the day. So I was, I was making a trip in, in the morning, sitting until probably nine to 10 o'clock. And then about that time is when the, the thermals and the wind would really start to swirl and whip around. And I would actually peel out of there, head back down, uh, hang out, you know, down, down low during the day. Um, you know, I could go where I had some cell service. I could, I could touch base with my wife. Um, you know, I could, you know, with a business with, you know, anything going on back home and just, you know, take care of some things after being there that long. So that, that played a huge part, you know, just, you come out of there for the midday, um, once, uh, you know, I guess, you know, things start to change and, you know, your, your, your window during the day that is maybe not as ideal, that starts to close and narrow. So it's putting in longer hours in the morning, longer hours in the evening. Um, I think the, the one, well, two things, my wife was probably, she's, you know, she was my biggest cheerleader and my biggest support saying, Hey, we're good here. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Just keep at it. Keep doing it. You've gone this long, (laughs) you know, don't, don't quit now. Um, but on top of that, you know, I was able to see, you know, a lot of elk, um, it wasn't the bull that we were after every time, but and the, and the crazy part is, you know, and, and people probably, they hear this, they're going to call me an idiot, but you know, that I bet I probably had an opportunity at 25, a good 20 to 25 bulls, Dan, that were 330, maybe 340 up to like probably the biggest was probably like 380 that, you know, that I, I had shot opportunities or that I had walking underneath me and you know in fact i would i would tell anybody including myself that if they pass up a 380 bull <laughs> with a bow and and don't take the shot you know that's <laughs> they're they maybe need need some uh uh diagnosis on <laughs> on their mental capacity but all i can say is it was a good thing i didn't see any bulls that were between 380 and my bull that uh, you know, I mean, he was, he, his, his official score was 412. Jeez. Jeez. How big is his fifth on his left side? Uh, the fit, I'm actually sitting here in my office looking at him right now. Um, his, his fifth, it, I can't, pretty bad. I can't tell you right off the top of my head. I think it's 18. I want a replica of just his fifth. And I want to just like have it in my truck in case anybody causes any trouble. I just pull that thing out, uh. It's just, I don't know, that always, I remember seeing that picture and just like, wow, look at that fifth. It dwarfed the fourth, it had weight, and the main beams just kept going. It was insane. Wow. He is very, very unique, you know, and and just, you know, a bull, you know, he's, you know, his width is, you know, he's, I I think he's 54 inches inside, 
um, Brian and I kept saying, you know, before we got him on the ground, we're like, can't wait to get this thing on the ground because I'm pretty sure I could drive a four wheeler between his, you know, what was his, his neck, his width on his rack? 54 inches inside, I think is what it actually and taped at. What was his main beam? His longest main beam? I think 59, I think his longest one. He's, oh, he he's didn't break 60. Huh? Nope. Not quite. I think he's 59. And, and actually the one side, the beam was about four or five inches shorter. I think, but yeah, 59 was his longest beam and, um, yeah, 50, 53 or 54 inside spread. I think there's so much more to talk about with you, Kyle, um, guys listening. Thank you for tuning into elk shape podcast. You have so many options out there. We appreciate it. This is your blue collar, hardworking delayed gratification podcast. In less than five days, we are launching the Elk Collective. That is our new project where it's digital education, elk hunting, but not from one source. As many people as possible that we think are amazing at elk hunting, we're bringing their content there. Now, this podcast is going to go into overdrive, and so the rest of this podcast can only be found at theelkcollective.com. That launches July 1st. I'm going to dig in on some real specific hunting questions with Kyle. You can find that content there. In the meantime, we appreciate you guys following this podcast. Check the show notes for how to follow Kyle on social, and uh, we'll post a few other links in there. And remember, separation is in the preparation. All right, guys. Pretty exciting little podcast with Kyle. That was fun. I did not know any of that stuff about him and that bull and all the behind the scenes. Kind of, I don't know. He painted a pretty cool a picture of how he got it done and his determination level to be in a stand that many hours and blinds and moving and, and to grind. And that is a grind of a hunt, man. That guy, he has what it takes. And what it takes is perseverance and determination and a never-give-up attitude. If you can just bottle that up, you will be a great elk hunter. Vortex Optics giving away the uh, Razor HD 4000 rangefinder at every elk shape camp for the individual who wins spirit of elk shape camp uh, that is the most prestigious award because that means they're the most hungry the most humble hardworking athlete at the camp and that's hard because everybody usually is very humble and hungry at the camps so thank you vortex optics for hooking up all our campers and i really appreciate the discount code for our listeners it's elk shape gets you 20 percent off vortex apparel Kenetrex also got a discount code exclusive to the campers of elk shape i've never been able to say it publicly because it is exclusive we have to respect mapping so uh but just want to thank you Kenetrex, for supporting all our camps this year it's been awesome i rock the mountain guides and i think everyone should try Kenetrex when they're doing their boot shopping get them on your feet see what you think baku e-bikes giving away the bike like i said after this next camp we will announce it we'll do a video we'll put on social somebody's gonna have a new awesome baku bike and then i have a couple of big baku discount codes i'm gonna drop and be on the lookout for that base map thanks for all your support and i'm excited to keep downloading all my offline maps so i can be a killer in the mountains and know exactly where i'm at have my topo and my satellite imagery Mad props to Kafaru for hooking up all the elk-shaped campers with an exclusive private discount code. It seems like everybody from the Colorado camp almost took advantage of that, and the Wisconsin camp should be awesome. We'll get you guys hooked up with the same opportunity. So thank you, Kafaru. Uh, Matthews, thank you for giving away a bow and always supporting elk-shaped efforts. We appreciate you.
Jason Phelps is going with me to the Wisconsin camp. This will be the first camp that we've done together, but he has generously given every camper for every camp a free Phelps Bugle tube and a diaphragm choice of theirs from the gray, the, the Maverick to the pink, and he's going with me. So thank you, Phelps, for helping us help others make great vocalizations, make elk hunting great again via Phelps. So thank you so much. Wilderness Athlete hooks all our campers up with energy and focus as well as hydrate and recover. Those are the staples in my backpack while elk hunting. And I just want to say thank you to them. And the discount code is ElkShape30. Save 30% off your first purchase. So if you've never purchased before, I'd be loading up on those trail packs and get those in your backpack for the season. Grim Reaper Broadheads has hooked it up. Every camper this year got one Micro Hades 3 blade, the same broadhead I've used in the last four years kill all my elk that uh i've been given one broadhead brand new for everyone to try check out its flight i've been super impressed with that thank you Sitka. thank you climate thank you easton thank you black gold sites and tight spot and thank you lakewood products all right guys pretty good episode if you want to catch the rest head over to the elkcollective.com that bad boy launches july 1 2020 have the best week ever and remember separation is in the preparation